BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, the power of Chicano Latinx art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I'm working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com, an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Our guest is Alvaro D. Marquez. Alvaro is a Los Angeles-based Chicanx visual artist, educator, and researcher. They are descended from three generations of migrant farm workers. Alvaro has a bachelor's degree in modern American history from Brown University, a master's degree in American studies and ethnicity from USC, and a master's in fine arts from California State University, Long Beach. Alvaro's work has been shown in galleries and museums throughout the United States, Mexico, and Germany. They are also known for two public art commissions in partnership with the California Department of Transportation in Los Angeles. Alvaro is currently employed as the Education Specialist for School Communities, the manager for the virtual and in-person field trip program for the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Alvaro, bienvenidos to our podcast. I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit about your personal history. Yeah, well, first, thanks for the invitation, George. It's great to be here. Uh, I come from the working class immigrant neighborhood of East Salinas, California, uh, where I was born and raised for the first 18 years of my life uh, to uh, basically several generations of migrant farm workers. Um, and that was really the root of my upbringing in this semi-rural community. I say semi-rural because it was... It's, it's definitely uh, a, a small city in, in the middle of an agricultural center. So you have sometimes quote unquote big city problems in, in a rural setting. So it was a, it was a very interesting place to grow up. I definitely value the lessons that I learned of growing up in a, in a, in a pri- primarily Mexican immigrant community. Um, I remember in high school, 
I think it was about something like 97% uh, Mexican, Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx students uh, in the school with about 50% of them having recently immigrated from Mexico. So it was a it was an interesting community to grow up in where you didn't really even have to speak English if you didn't want to. Uh, you can get by uh, somewhat easily in certain parts of the community. So it, it, it definitely informs uh, a lot of what I do professionally, personally, and artistically. Identity-wise also, uh, for those of us that were sons of uh, migrant farm workers, oftentimes we were sent in the fields to work ourselves, as I was. I'm wondering if you worked in the fields también. You know, my parents made it a point not to let me work as a child because my mom started working when she was about 14 years old. And my dad started working when he was about 11 or 12. So they, they always made it a point to make sure that I had a childhood that didn't involve working. Um, so I think I, I, I definitely know that's an experience of a lot of people in, in these communities. I know my cousins were put to work in the fields. Um, I have one of my college buddies uh, whose grandparents were migrant farm workers also went to work in the field. So I think that's a valuable uh, lesson. Uh, I definitely didn't work, but I visited a lot. Uh, I visited my father at work. Uh, at some point, he worked his way up to be a tractor driver uh, spraying pesticides on the agricultural fields. And so I would go visit him, hop on the tractor, and he would, quote unquote, let me drive it. Uh, you know, it's just a straight shot for a quarter mile sometimes, but I have very vivid memories of that, uh, of that time of my life, uh, that definitely gave me a particular appreciation for labor as well. I think it politicized me in a certain way in terms of thinking about class relations and racialized labor and the sorts of hierarchies we have in society that value certain forms of labor more than others and the sorts of security you can or cannot access because of that. Interesting. And you went to Brown University from high school. That is quite a leap, a son of migrant farm workers going into an Ivy League university. What was that like? It was a shock. You know, I think in my campus of about 2,000 students, uh, including graduate students, you know, it's a pretty small university. Um, I think there was, you know, I could probably count in a few hands how many uh, Chicanx folks there were, there was a lot of Latinx folk, you know, a lot of Boricuas, Dominicanos, uh, a lot of the East Coast Latina, Latino community, but very few Mexicanos. And so it, I think we gravitated towards each other. Uh, I definitely had friends from Texas who were Tejanos, you know, a different flavor. Uh, it was a very beautiful experience, but at the same time, it was very challenging uh, because I think the institution is very diverse ethnically, but in terms of class, socioeconomic class, the university is, you know, an elite institution for the children of the rich. So there was a divide between myself and my classmates in a lot of regards. So it, it was a big culture shock that my high school teachers actually tried to prepare me for. Because a lot of the, the teachers in my community had gone to universities uh, after growing up in Salinas and gone back to Salinas to teach in the community. So I think in that regard, I benefited a lot from these this history of activism 
in the Chicana Chicano movement uh, in the 70s and 80s in my community where, you know, people like Cesar Chavez were were visiting places like Salinas as part of the, the boycott movements and, and, and the labor organizing. So there's this there's this particular place that, that I experience in these broader historical movements, if that makes sense. So I tie that back to my experience at Brown to say that the, the only reason I even applied was because I had a high school teacher, my my honors, uh, my honors history teacher um, said, hey, you know, like you're doing well. You seem to have this aptitude. There's a school called Brown you should look into. I had never heard of Brown. I didn't know that it was an Ivy League school, that it was that important. I just knew that a teacher told me I should look into it. And he was somebody that I respected who had come from my community. He had gotten his master's degree there. And I once I got accepted to the university with a generous scholarship, I accepted the offer without having ever visited the campus. I didn't really see the campus until I showed up uh, in the late summer of 1999 uh, to to see Providence, Rhode Island. It was it was an adventure, uh, but it was definitely a very at times very fraught part of my life. It you know it had its very acute challenges. Right. As, as the son of migrant farm workers, not only are we dealing with class issues, I think, coming from poor families with on financial aid, but also developmentally, it's a difficult time, right? You're in your late teens, early 20s, trying to find yourself. So you have all these different layers happening, I think, as you're trying to acclimate to an academic institution. Absolutely. I mean, I know like I, I, one of the through lines in this podcast series is talking about sort of art and healing. And, and you know, uh, I think for me, I'm very open about the fact that I have a diagnosed uh, mood disorder. And a lot of the symptoms started manifesting really when they started manifesting in my teens, but they really became acute once I went to college because that was under so much stress. It was, I didn't have my regular support system. I was out of my element. I was, like you're saying, developmentally figuring out who I was while recognizing the privilege of the people around me and the different lives that they could lead. Um, and I definitely sought psychological support pretty much every semester and every semester I skipped the 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 appointment I just wouldn't go because there's a lot of still cultural resi- uh, resistance to the idea of therapy of being mentally ill you know estoy loco you know estoy roto you know what I mean like and so there there's a reason why I turned to art later in my life because it became an outlet it became for many years I didn't even show my art I think I was making art since I was in high school all the way through my 30s and 20s sorry and I my late 20s and I made art all the time but it was always for me it was a very personal experience it was a cathartic visceral experience to exercise whatever I was going through and that was it it existed for that purpose. And it wasn't until 2013 that I started showing my art. And that was a, a, a very weird uh, turn of events for me because all of a sudden I was exposing all of myself through my art, right? You expose your vulnerabilities, your aptitude, your shortcomings, your perceived shortcomings, at least. And you feel very naked when you show your art. So 
it was it's been this gradual process of finding ways to find healing uh, in the midst of being a functional human being in this society, right? Having a mental illness, but still, it doesn't mean that I can't live a healthy, fulfilling life. It just means that there are certain uh, factors that contribute uh, to my emotional state, uh, depending on the stressors that I'm experiencing. Um, and, and the art becomes a way to harness that energy and turn it into something, I don't want to say productive, because that sounds hyper-capitalist, but I would say into something that is constructive. And contributive. And, you know, I wanted to commend you because in spite of your mental health diagnosis, you have done some astronomical things. You went from Brown to USC, right? And what what were you studying at, at USC? At USC, I was a PhD student in American Studies and Ethnicity, and it's an interdisciplinary program, so there's a lot of leeway to choose your intellectual path. And I chose a path that was focused primarily, uh, there's, <clears throat> I went through most of the schooling process and I reached what you call ABD, which is all but dissertation. So if I had finished my dissertation, I would have had my PhD. I would have uh, been able to to add those three letters to the end of my my name. But I decided in the midst of my schooling uh, that I was more interested in art, not as an object of study, but as a material process that I wanted to engage in, if that makes sense. So I, after Brown, I spent some time traveling, uh, just really living a very bohemian lifestyle, which I... I I don't regret, but it does mean that um, there's, you know, there's certain decisions that you make when you're younger to how to spend your time, you know, our short, finite time on this earth. And I wanted to spend my 20s exploring and not really thinking about careers and money and mortgages and retirement, all those things. Um, And so when I went to grad school, I, I really was exploring this idea of how to explore my intellectual curiosity and maybe make a career of it. And <clears throat> I chose the uh, what is called the cultural studies and path, and I focused on visual culture. And I was doing all this research on visual media and art, and I realized by the time I had finished my master's degree that really my passion was in making art, not writing about it. And so the shift that I did was to take a research-based art practice um, so that I would, I still try to do the same research that I would do as an academic in terms of reading secondary sources, finding primary sources, going into archives. But instead of writing a scholarly body of work around it, I produce an artistic body of work. I, I, I've, I have a, a pretty clear through line in terms of the themes that I engage in in my work, even if it looks uh, somewhat different every iteration, um, I do the research and I make art based on that thinking, on that process, because I did appreciate that intellectual community. I just realized that I didn't want to spend two to three years writing a book to obtain a degree that wasn't going to be necessary for what I wanted to do, if that makes sense. Right. It was going to tie you to academia and teaching, essentially, is what it would do. And and research and research, you know, and, and research. You have to really love research to, to be a, a, an R1 scholar. I mean, you can go the teaching route. I love teaching. But in grad school, uh, you're pushed to go the R1 route. 
which is really research-based. You're producing all the time. It's a workaholic lifestyle. I respect it. It's important, necessary work. Um, you know, part of me is still applying to academic jobs with the use of my MFA because I, I did go back to grad school to get an MFA. Um, but it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that I didn't want to commit to at that time. Interesting. It was not a good fit for you. What, how did you make that transition from grad student to artist? It was a, it was a tough transition. I basically, when I was at USC, my last year there, I was on fellowship. And while I was on fellowship, I was interning actually in the mental health field, working as a case manager uh, for mental health clinics. I spent one year, I was on fellowship, so I was getting a paycheck from USC. Um, but I was uh, volunteering at these clinics. And at the same time, I was taking art classes uh, through small community spaces uh, near Highland Park, where I was living at the time. And I took this class. My, my ex-partner at the time said, hey, you know, you, you're really bummed out. You left grad school. You don't know what you're doing. Why don't you take this art class since you're always talking about making art? Why don't you get back into it? And this was back in maybe 2012, I want to say, after I have left grad school finally, and I was just finishing off my, my last year, I took this introduction to printmaking class at the Center for Arts in Eagle Rock, and I immediately fell in love. I was just addicted immediately, especially with relief printing. We learned some etching, but I really wasn't interested. I, I, I learned how to make lino cuts, and I'd say from the first month that I started making lino cuts, it it became this cathartic release. I realized that there was so much about printmaking that fascinated me because it's a process-oriented art form. It's, you know, I, I, I would paint in the past and I would become very impatient. As a painter, I think I'm a horrible painter because I'm impatient. You know, painting is about building up layers and, 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 and the color uh, uh, saturation. And, and you have to be very patient as a painter. Uh, and I, don't, I lack that patience. Um, I, I want the immediate resolution. And so it comes out in, in ways that are not aesthetically appealing. And with printmaking, it forced me to slow down. It forced me because the process is one of delayed gratification. You don't get to see the fruit of your labor for sometimes a week or two or a month, depending on your, your time frame. You have to draw, you have to concept, well, you have to conceptualize, draw, carve, print. And it's not until you pull that proof print that you know whether or not your pressure is correct and your inking is correct and you can proceed with your addition. And there was something about that process that in a weird way taught me lessons about life, right? To, to focus on the long-term benefits as opposed to the immediate satisfaction, right? I, I, I drew that metaphor from printmaking to focus on the process rather than where I am in the process, right? Trusting that at the end of this process, if I follow the steps correctly, it gives me a sense that I know what I'm producing, if that makes sense, right? And I think that in life, we have to deal with so much uncertainty, right? We live with the fallacy that we can control our destiny when there's so many things that just are way beyond our control. And so in a weird way, printmaking has brought peace for me. Um, and it's something that even the act of carving is one where I reach a state of, you know, I think it's been called, um, uh, what's the term? It's this 
this phenomenon, but being like, it's almost like in the zone where your brain, not nirvana, uh, there's, there's a psychological term for it and I'm, and I'm blanking out right now, but it's essentially being in the zone where your, your mind is focused on the present, not in the future, not in the past. My focus has to be on the gouge, where it is on the block. Am I pushing too hard, too softly? Am I going too far to the right, too far to the left? Am I doing it just right? It's, it demands your presence. And so, uh, this is a long winded answer, right? To say how I, it, it started with this existential crisis of no longer being an academic and not knowing what to do with my life to finding this cathartic outlet that has just blossomed into this whole other branch of my life. And interesting enough, your artistic talent has had a lot of validation. Can you tell me about some of your career highlights? Sure. I mean, I, I, I'm not one to try to uh, get a sense of, of my own worth by, by selling myself. But I think, you know, I've been very fortunate. I, I recently I've been, my work has been purchased by a lot of big uh, archives and collections like the, um, the, the Hood Museum of Art in Dartmouth, uh, the, um, the, the new Lucas Museum of Narrative Art bought a suit of my prints and I'm in their archive and will probably be exhibited once it opens. The Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley, the UC Santa Cruz archives, uh, library archives purchased some of my prints. Uh, so I've been very fortunate in that regard. And I have also been working on some public art projects. I recently finished a project, um, a, a th- almost 300 foot sculpture based on a print that I produced in grad school. Uh, with Caltrans and I'm currently in the process of, uh, working with the Los Angeles County Department of Arts and Culture to develop, uh, a triptych, uh, in a park in La Puente here in the San Gabriel Valley. And, and if all goes well, I also have another project with UC Irvine and a new student housing facility. Uh, but these, you know, one thing I've learned about public art. Uh, is that it moves very slowly, and so you have to be very patient. The the the, the time frames are in years, not in months. So you just have to play the long game, and it goes back to this idea of printmaking. What it's taught me to trust the process, you know, instead of being so worried. I think sometimes as artists, you have this pressure to always say like, you. I don't know. I feel like there's weird pressure since we're forced to commercialize ourselves and commodify and turn ourselves into brands to always want to be at the forefront of something, to be getting attention, to be saying, me, 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 look at me, look at, look at what I'm capable of doing. Um, and I think that that for me became an unhealthy obsession. And so I've, I've had to take a, a step back to reassess the role of art in my life uh, and, and finding a source of validation that comes from myself and not from accolades or attention or, or success in a conventional way. Right. Success as you define it. What what are some future projects you would love to be able to work on? And do you have ideas about things that you would like to implement in the future? Well, I've had several projects that I wanted to work on for a while, but I did take a hiatus. You know, I took a, a one year hiatus from making art from March of 2021 to March of 2022. I, I, I purposely took a break. I had been producing feverishly for about 
nine years just at a breakneck pace, producing so much work, you know, and I'm grateful for that productivity, but I burned out. I became really exhausted. So right now I'm working on uh, a new series uh, uh, of works on wooden panels that are completely unlike anything I've ever made. And I find it exhilarating because I'm not repeating myself. I'm not, you know, I think part of the, the commodification of the artists in contemporary society is to create a recognizable brand that people can spot and say, oh, that's a such and such. I want it. And you recognize it. And it's part of this identity around the artist. You know, there's a lot of artists like that and I don't disparage them. It's a way of functioning. I respect it. But for me, I find that imminently boring. I always want to reinvent and challenge and learn and start from scratch. It keeps me humble. It keeps me excited. It keeps me engaged. I lose interest. If I've been doing the same thing, if I were to be doing the same art for 10 years, I would lose interest. I get bored very easily. I constantly have to challenge myself. I constantly have to find something that scares me. And so trying new things is very scary. Like I'm, I'm working on these, I guess you could call them paintings where I use the tools of a printmaker to create uh, a, a painting on a wooden panel that incorporates embroidery by drilling holes and, and doing embroidery with embroidery floss. It's weird stuff. And, and, and I can do that because I have this steady job, right? I, I no longer have this pressure of thinking every time I make something, is it going to sell? Because that's a pressure that I had before um, that kept me in the figurative realm. Because the figurative art sells generally well compared to abstract art, uh, at least in my experience. The, it gives you something tangible to connect with. People see themselves and see their lives in figurative art. I, see, I respect that. But there's something really freeing about making weird uh, abstract art that has more to do with my own curiosities than worrying about pleasing uh, the viewer, if that makes sense. I still want to elicit curiosity and pleasure, but my primary objective isn't to prove my artistic skill through this painting. It's to explore composition, color, form, texture, things that bring me great joy and and that are still very politically rooted, right? And that's one of the veins that I'm trying to explore in my work. I look at people who work in social abstraction, which is something that I respect, right? Working in the abstract realm, but having that abstraction be rooted in social realities. So it's not pure abstraction. I'm not work thinking just about color and form and texture. I'm thinking about them with regards to these social histories that I'm engaging with, if that makes sense. Uh, interesting. What? How do you want to be remembered as an artist 100 years from now, when people look back at the art career of Alvaro Marquez? I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I tend not to think about those things, you know? Um, and it's not to, not to poo-poo the question. It's just not something that I think about, because I have this philosophical stance in life that like I'm not seeking immortality through my art uh, I think that if I try to seek immortality through my art then it consumes me and it becomes this obsession rather I'm just trying to do live an ethical and and quote-unquote good life and leave a positive imprint and if part of that is my art fantastic 
you know, to, to know that maybe generations from now people knew that I existed. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's a weird um, privilege to have. So if that happens to be my circumstance, fantastic. If not, I'm not pining over it. You know, it, 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 um. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Everything's ephemeral. Everything comes and goes. And so does it. Yeah. I am a great admirer of your work, and I am sure it is going to live on uh, through generations. Um, and you became a father. Tell us about how the role of fatherhood has influenced your process. It's made me more organized. Um, and it's made me, in a weird way, more productive when I do produce work. Because uh, I know I only have set hours any, any given week to, to work on my art. And so I to become very disciplined about my work schedule. Um, so it, it has slowed me down, quote unquote, right? Because I don't have all the extra hours that I used to have to just spend 10 hours a day on my art practice. But it, it feeds my perspective. You know, I, I definitely care about things that I didn't care about when I didn't have, you know, the life of a human being under my responsibility. One of the uh, things that I admire about you being friends on social media is the creativity that you put into the process of fatherhood and the things that you do with your son. They tend to be very creative things, working on projects and things like that. What type of advice would you have for the young gen younger generation of Chicanx, Latinx artists, the next wave of artists to come, or those young youth out there in high school that are pondering a, a career in art? You know, I, I've, the older I get, the more practical I've become. You know, I think that if I were to give advice to a person, a young person aspiring to a career in the arts, is that, you know, there's a lot. The, one of the beautiful things about pursuing a career in the arts is, is like this like unrestrained idealism that you can engage in. But then that is confronted with this pragmatic reality that we live in a capitalist society that values certain forms of labor over others, right? And artistic labor, while it's validated on a cultural level, it's not compensated on a, on a financial level. Uh, you know, you can have a lot of success on paper as an artist, but not see it in your bank account. Um, and I think that some artists are very adept at maneuvering the, the commercial side of art. And that's great. But I think that 
if I were to meet, say, a 15, 16, 17-year-old who says, I want to go into the arts, one piece of advice I would give them is to try to develop uh, a toolkit for how to survive in the labor market. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes you have people who studied art, maybe went to... You know, some people get really lucky and can find this career to get paid in the arts very easily. Not easily, but with 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 some maneuvering, right? I'm talking about people going to animation, graphic design. There's certain commercially viable art forms that I think create clear pathways. But if you're interested in fine arts, I would say find a marketable skill that is either tangentially connected to the arts or has nothing to do with arts so that you can pay the bills. And keep developing your artistic skill set because you want to be prepared for those opportunities when they arrive. And there's value in an art education. I I do believe that. Uh, But I would say be pragmatic and have a backup plan because there's, you know, a lot of people who have all their training in fine arts then graduate from college or grad school. And all you can do is either teach or work producing art, right? And, And unfortunately... That's going to leave you in a tough spell, in a tough situation, relying on maybe exploitative forms of labor to get by, working in retail, working on all the other things. So that's my, like, as a 40-year-old artist, like, looking back and thinking, you know, what has gotten me by? I think what has helped me is having my other education, right? Having my history degree as an undergrad, having my master's in, in ethnic studies, has and, and working in the nonprofit sector has opened a lot of uh, jobs for me that are now, you know, art related because I work at the Getty Museum. But um, if I had just had art training, I wouldn't have been able to get the job that I have now. Can you tell us about your position at the Getty Museum? Sure. So my official title is Education Specialist for School Communities for the Education Department at the Getty Museum. What that really translates to is I'm a program manager for the field trip program. So I oversee uh, on-site and virtual field trips for the Getty Center. And I have a colleague who oversees the field trip operations at the Getty Villa. And collectively, we work with a team of staff and we oversee the hopefully successful operation of a field trip program that in the past has seen close to 130,000 students a year. Uh, This year, we're seeing a tiny fraction of that because of COVID restrictions and our own safety measures. But starting next school year, we're going to be increasing our numbers and hopefully reaching close to 80,000 students, uh, 70% of which come from Title I schools, who, uh, you know, in, which are basically under-resourced schools in, in, in working class and working poor communities. So you have, it, it's, it's a very, it, for me, it's an interesting opportunity to be part of the mechanisms that enable these students to have a free quality field trip experience. And, and that's sort of, that's the gist of what I do at the Getty. You know, I, I have my hand in a lot of other projects because we work very collaboratively in the department. Uh, but I do oversee staff. I oversee a budget. A lot of my work is administrative now, which I did not anticipate doing. If you had asked me even a few years ago, I was very committed to teaching. Uh, but this opportunity came up and, you know, I think at my, at this point in my, my life's journey, 
I wanted stability. I wanted also to be challenged. And this is a chance to, to, to grow my skill set so that, you know, 10 years down the line, who knows where I could be professionally. At least it gives me a sense that I'm, I'm growing and pushing myself. Um, I'm still, you know, I still got my foot in the door in academia, looking to like teaching part time or potentially transitioning back to teaching full time if the opportunity opens up at some point in the future. But that's a, you know, I, I, I can make that decision from the comfort of, of secure employment. Amazing. Well, Alvaro, that is all the time that we have for today. I want to thank you. It is such an honor to have you here. Uh, you are an absolutely talented uh, artist who, um, who I very much admire, and I'm glad you could be our guest today. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much, George. It's been my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, and best of luck with this endeavor. You got it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx Art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.